excuse me, I got something in my throat. Um, today, what we're going to do, we're, we've got basically um, three, three things left to talk about when it comes to um, church history, uh, which is we're closing in on the end of where we can talk about church history. Today, we're going to talk about, um, we, we have previously talked about the Catholic Church up through um, the Council of Trent. We're going to kind of update the modern Catholic Church today and where, where she stands. Um, next week, we're going to do um, not, not the political side of the civil rights movement, but the religious side of the civil rights movement and the black church in America. And then we are going to, um, the last thing we're going to cover in November is going to be mega churches and that sort of phenomenon that has crept up in, in America in the past you know, 50 years or so. Um, and then we'll move in December into going back to First Samuel and uh, do a, a study for a while through Scripture and handling um, the biblical text again. So today we've got modern Catholicism, and, and modern Catholicism I think is broken kind of down into two, two distinct is going to be from Trent and then the, the 1700s up through World War I or World War II actually, and then the, the changes that have come in the Catholic Church from World War II and, and on. And so um, if we turn to like the late 1700s, I do want to say one of the reasons why we're doing this today is because understanding the Catholic Church in America is important for us. This isn't like um, it's, we're not spending time studying what's going on in France or in England. Um, we're not spending time with Latin American churches. So why focus on the Roman Catholic Church? Well, because the Roman Catholic Church matters. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church is important, especially for us here in Bay City. is a large Catholic population in Bay City, um, a large Catholic population still in the United States. And so it would, it would behoove us to know um, what's going on in the Catholic Church amongst our, our neighbors so that we can more rightly speak about those things um, and, and be more knowledgeable even if we, we get a chance to talk to them. Um, in the late 1700s uh, up through World War I, we have a, a pretty standard way of the Catholic Church handling their business, and that is to grip on to every single ounce of authority they can. And there's a, a good reason why. is because in the late 1700s, um, what you have is the constant eroding of the church's secular power. So this happens in a number of ways. It happens first in America um, because the American Revolution and the, the drafting of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, um, as we've seen before, republics and the voting of the people, even though America didn't quite do that at the beginning fully, um, nevertheless, the idea of republics and democracy did indeed stand against the way that the church had formulated itself in Europe. So the church and the state were not separate entities. They were kind of one together, as we see in the Church of England. And just as we saw with Charles I, as people in the parliament wanted to make the Church of England follow not an Episcopal type of order where the authority was rested in, in individuals as you went up, they wanted it to be more of a Presbyterian sort of government where you had a body that ruled over those below it. Um, Charles I and others resisted that strongly because that undermined the monarchy, right? If the church is to be ordered by a, a group of elders, then why should countries not be ruled by a group of elders, right? And so um, they fought hard against this. Well, there is, there's nothing that's going to fight harder against ruling by
the first one in the continental uh, Europe was the French Revolution. And the French Revolution, I don't know if you guys know much about it, it was the American Revolution on steroids. And not like the good kind of steroids, but like the mean, angry, rageful kind of steroids. And um, they just beheaded everybody that they could find, like random people on the street, you know? They, they were, it was a wicked, wicked thing. And the, the idea was a backlash, not only against the monarchy, but against the church in that. And so when the French Revolution first started to happen, uh, the Catholic Church was obviously strongly against it. Once Napoleon decided that the, the revolution kind of went full circle and he said, oh, what we need is not a republic, what we need is an emperor. And the French were like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, which you just, the whole thing started like, we need a republic. And then he was like, I should be emperor. And they're like, yeah, emperor. So uh, at that point, the Pope kind of came around on it right? And so he's like, oh, an emperor, I can get on board with an emperor. And so um, eventually uh, Pius VI <laughs> decides that, that they can make peace, and he's going to go, and he's going to um, crown Emperor Napoleon. But again, if you go back to like Charlemagne and the, and the crowning of emperors, there is always this issue of the Pope crowns you as an emperor, right? Who is really in authority? Is it the one being crowned, or is it the one doing the crowning? Napoleon apparently knows this well. So as Pius VI is approaching him to crown him, he stands up, takes the crown out of Pius's hands, and crowns himself, um, which, is a, which is a very Napoleonic kind of move. And uh, I, I don't know how Pius reacted to that, but um, probably not piously. Uh, and so this, this eventually leads to a number of, of statements where... Um, the secular power that's being invested in the church throughout all of the Middle Ages is slowly being divested from them. England now has their own separate church. Even France has gone astray. Eventually what's going to happen is, is uh, there will be wars in Italy where Rome will actually lose its, its possessions in Italy. So Rome had like actual physical dominion over, not Rome, but the Roman church had physical dominion over the city of Rome and other places. Eventually, Italy is going to confiscate those. Eventually, they will give them back the little bit of Vatican. So if you know the Vatican City is its own like little, uh, it's, I don't want to call it a municipality. It's its own thing. It's not Nothing reigns over it. Italy does not own Vatican City. Vatican City is the Pope's own domain. Um, but what happens is through these, these modernization of the world, not only are they losing their secular power and telling governments what they ought to do, they're literally losing their land. The, the church has no influence over much of anything anymore. And um, it's, it's kind of evident in everything that's going on. So they are trying to consolidate people as much as they possibly can. Um, this, again, um, is continued in the life of Pius IX. So we went from Pius the, the sixth to Pius the Ninth. Pius the Ninth um, ruled for as long as any pope ever did. He ruled for 32 years from 1846 uh, to 1878. And during his tenure, this was the nadir of the secular power of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church basically lost 
every ounce of secular power it had. It couldn't tell countries how to run themselves anymore because countries were like, we're ruled by people, we're not ruled by monarchs, and certainly now the American idea of a separation of church and state is becoming much more common. Um, and so the, the church has lost a great deal of its secular power. It's lost its own secular power. It, it, can't, it doesn't have a territory to rule over anymore. Um, and so what Pius ends up <clears throat> doing is if he's going to lose all of his political and temporal power, he starts to grab on to as much theological and ecclesiological power as he possibly can. He does this in a couple of ways. In 1854, he announces the dogma, and that is a very important word. He announces the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Does anybody know what the Immaculate Conception? Not the Immaculate Reception. That is Franco Harris in like 1978. Um, but the Immaculate Conception, uh, only like three people knew what I was talking about there. The Immaculate Conception. Does anybody know what that's in reference to? What's that? It is not in reference to the virgin birth, believe it or not. <laughs> I didn't it, that, that's what I thought for a very, very long time. But it's not in reference to the virgin birth. It's in reference to whose birth? Mary's sinlessness. That she was immaculately conceived in the womb as well. So the deal is that Catholic theologians had been dealing with this for centuries. Like, <clears throat> the idea was that if Christ was to be carried by Mary, that it wouldn't be fitting or right in their understanding. Again, you can see where their, I wouldn't have time to tease this out, but you can see where their understanding of justification leads them down this path. They, they could not have a perfect Christ being carried in a sinful vessel, if you would. And so what they wanted to do was say, okay, we need to go, we need to clear this up one stage back. And so they proposed the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary herself was indeed sinless, just as Christ was sinless, so that Jesus would have been born and carried in the womb for nine months by this sort of perfect sinless vessel, okay? Now, um, all of that is quite clearly extra-biblical, right? It's just theological reasoning, and, and I think that we would reject that for any of a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons why it's important, though, is because this is the first time in the history of the Catholic Church that any pope has made a dogmatic statement like that that then has to be accepted by all in the church without the use of a council. So every time that the Catholic Church has done this, there's been a council that stood behind these sorts of things. So it's not just the Pope, but it's bishops and cardinals who are giving their assent to this. He just throws it out there, and he says, this is now dogma, Mary. And, and again, it was kind of a, it was almost like a test case because theologians had debated it. He throws it out just to see kind of what's going to happen, and no one seems to care all that much. There's very little fuss over not just the doctrine. I think in Protestant circles, the doctrine would have been, you know, kind of like eye-rolled, but in Catholic circles, his usurping of the authority of the councils didn't seem to be a big deal. In 1864, then, he goes further and he publishes what is called the Syllabus of Errors. And the Syllabus of Errors is basically like... Um, it's like the 95 theses, only for what everyone else in the world is doing wrong, okay? So it's, it's just this very negative thing. And um, in it, he's arguing for things like the church has the authority force, and so he means like we can kill people when we want to. Um, 
and temporal power. He goes on to say that church-state separation is wrong, um, that if you are an immigrant coming into a Catholic country, and he is looking directly at Spain for this, if you are an immigrant coming into a Catholic country, you have no right in that country, you should have no right in that country to perform and to practice your own religions. So you should be Catholic. Catholic countries should be Catholic through and through and allow no other religions inside of them at all. Um, he basically, in this, this document, um, takes on the First Amendment uh, that, of, of our Constitution with a great deal of passion and just trashes it. And he, he says that this, this is not the way that Catholics are to, to handle their own issues. Um, this helps us at least partly in um, American uh, for Americans, you can begin to see why a good deal of them in the mid-18th, late-18th, or excuse me, late-1800s, late-19th century, the Pope and democracy wasn't quite trustable, okay? And so when you come up to the 1960 election, there was a big deal about Kennedy being Catholic, okay? That, that wasn't unfounded, right? Because it wasn't too terribly long ago the Pope was like, the separation of church and state is, is something you can't do. When a Catholic then is running for president, there's a good reason why people look at him and be like, so if that, like, some of the fears were, you're going to be told by the Vatican how you should run our country. That's not an unfounded concern. That was literally what the Pope said should happen, okay? So uh, there is reasons why in America that Catholics, when they ran for office, were, were somewhat distrusted. To, to kind of up the ante, in 1870, he um, is trying to seal his power, and to do this, ironically, he calls a council. This is the first Vatican council. Um, and he issues something that's called Pastor, uh, Pastor Eternus, um, which is thereby known as papal infallibility, okay? So papal infallibility is a, is a very, very narrow doctrine, um, which states that it is only when the Pope is using the fullness of his powers, and he makes that clear that he is infallible, Okay, so they call this speaking ex cathedra, and that means from the throne, okay? So when he is sitting, it's a, it's a metaphor, right? When he is sitting on the throne of Peter, when he's sitting on, on the seat of Peter, and he speaks for Peter and the church, it is only then that he is infallible. Now, this is important because it's quite clear that Catholics don't always think that their popes are infallible, Right? Um, and the Catholic Church can't maintain that either because it is just obvious from history that there have been literal heretics who have been the Pope of Rome, okay? And, and the Catholic Church recognizes this, and so they can't say that popes are always infallible, but they are only infallible when they speak in this very, very certain way, um, which is an odd thing because it buys them the authority to basically bypass councils, but it doesn't do much else, um, so it wasn't ever used in history, right? Because every dogmatic, up until he made the doctrine of um, the Immaculate Conception into dogma, every other dogmatic statement had always been made by a council. So how many times since 1870, when this was put into place, has papal infallibility been used by a pope? How many times? Any guesses? 
Okay. Well, I'm just looking for a number. Like, if you were going to guess, how many times did the Pope, did the, did the Pope get up and say, hey, we, so we got 12, anybody? I got a 12, I got a 12, I got a 12. Well, then guess. Don't sit there and don't, don't be a commentator on the sideline. Put yourself out there. At least we got, we got a 12. 12 is high. It's happened one time. One time. That's it. So I know that when I was, when I was growing up, it's not like I was raised in a super religious house. I thought that, that popes always were like perceived of as being infallible in everything that they did. And that's just not the case, um, which is why you can have Catholics look at, very conservative Catholics now looking at Francis and being like, that dude is not quite with it, right? So they can, they can look at Francis and they can disagree with almost everything that dude says and be okay because you can disagree with him because he's not infallible and he has not stood up and, and given any sort of doctrine ex cathedra. You can imagine how many popes are in between 1870 and today and only one of them said anything ex cathedra. By the way, you said, you said something on abortion. That wasn't it. Does anybody know what it was? I have to find it. Oh, there it is. What's that? Oh, good question. 1950 is when it happened. 1950. You got a you guess there, brother, Jimmy? I missed that, brother. I'm sorry. What? Oh, uh, oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We're not talking. We're we're not talking about that yet, uh, or at all. Um, so you you said that it was about he made he made the statement about abortion. 1950 is a little early for that, though, right? So that's not right. Do you have a guess? You wanted to know the date, but are you going to just comment again? Okay. That's fair, as long as we know where we are with you. Uh, it, it's not birth control, no. Nope. Not about civil rights. You guys are thinking much too practical. What? It's not about communism either. So this has got to be, so it's got to be something very, very theological, right? Because this is like the dogma of the church. So there's plenty of things that they've said about birth control, about abortion, about com- communism is going to come up a whole bunch. So they've said about that. It was about Mary again. And this time it was about the assumption of Mary. And that's not assuming Mary. What does the assumption of Mary mean? They don't assume that Mary exists. That's not what they mean. What do they mean by the assumption of Mary? And she was taken up into heaven like Elijah, basically. Mary didn't die. So it's like Mary was born pure. And you can tell why Protestants are like, listen, when it comes to Mary, you guys are a little wacky here. You guys have this like real thing for making her into more than she is. So the only time that papal infallibility has ever been used was in 1950 to declare that Mary was assumed up into heaven without physical bodily death. It's a very strange thing. Anyway, so Yes.
Right. Right. And, and the assumption also just, if the assumption, you can look at it at, in less philosophical terms. You can look at it like, if she didn't sin, then she can't die. Right? So there's, I, I, under, I understand what, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Like, I, I think that there's a number of reasons why they wanted to do that. It's just interesting to me that that's the one thing that they, like, had to clear up. Right? So, um, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing. It does make sense within Catholic theology. The problem is that um, both of those two things don't make any sense within the realm of Scripture, right? Like, there, there's just... Yes, yeah, I, I know that there's... Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm just saying from, from our perspective, though, like, making those big, those things big issues is very strange to us because it's, it's so secondary to anything in Scripture. And it's, like you said, it's just saying, hey, we need to uphold what Aquinas has said because he is now the doctor of the church. It's upholding the way in which we're going to view sinfulness and sinlessness in, in the very person of Mary. And so we've, we've got to attach these things on to, like you said, keep everything nice and pure and clean. But for us, we would just look at that and be like, Scripture just doesn't even come close to, to mentioning it. Yeah, yeah. Right. But they, 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 quite, they quite clearly didn't do that. So, um, so what Pius IX is doing is, again, all of his temporal power is gone, and so he is, he is maximizing the amount of theological authority and power that he has and ecclesiological power that he has. Um, Eventually, um, Leo the Thirteenth is going to um, continue to do the same thing. Um, there's a another aspect that he brings forward of Catholic theology, which is going to run through not just the end of the 19th century but into the 20th, and that is in 1891 he issues a bull called Rerum Novarum. Um, this is about labor and employment. If you guys know anything about the late 19th century, it was not a good time to be a laborer in anywhere in the world as the Industrial Revolution was, was going. Um, laborers were oftentimes overused, underpaid. Um, there was child labor everywhere. Uh, and so the Catholic Church was, was on the forefront of denouncing that kind of thing. And his, his argument was, listen, if you are wealthy, there are plenty of avenues that you have to defend yourself. If you are poor, you have to rely on the state. You don't have these other avenues. You don't have power. You don't have money. You've got nothing. You have to rely upon the state. It is incumbent upon states to protect the poor. It is incumbent upon states to protect workers and their rights. Um, and he, he, he had a, um, this was the beginning of the, the sort of uh, social doctrine of, of Catholics uh, when it came to dealing with poverty in the modern age. Um, Certainly, um, there, here he favored unions, although later on that's going to be changed to specifically Catholic unions, but I don't think Catholics follow that too closely anymore. Um, this is also then where he starts to issue, issue out statements about being against socialism. So you could read those things and think, oh, well, the Catholic Church is becoming socialist, and he says very clearly, no, personal property is a matter of fact in the Bible. God has given property to people. They own it. It is theirs. It is not up for socialism. So this is the beginning not only of the church um, 
sort of working, the Catholic Church, working for uh, poor peoples and lands, but also then standing against socialism, which is then going to take a very, very firm stance against things like communism as well. Um, Basically, up until World War II, um, the popes all acted in the same vein. So in the beginning of the 20th century, you've got the rise of uh, communism in Europe and um, they, they very clearly went through and disavowed communism as strongly as they could. Part of that disavowal, though, um, didn't take a very awesome turn because does anybody know the foremost uh, sort of standard bearer of standing against communism in Europe um, when communism started to kind of gain ground in the 1920s and the 1930s? What political party was the staunchest anti-communist party? the Nazis, right? And so what you've got is this battle communism, and the popes were, were somewhat quick to go in for the Nazism, fascism route. Um, it didn't take them very long to see that what Hitler was doing was not going to be okay by their standards. They did kind of play along with them for a little bit, but by 37, they not only were denouncing communism, they were also denouncing Nazism. Although during the war, again, in order to keep a maintain, in order to maintain some semblance of power, they decided that they didn't want to issue any sort of statements during the war. They were trying to remain politically neutral, um, which didn't really work because everyone knew that the Catholic Church knew what was happening to the Jews in Germany. Any mention of what was happening to the Jews in Germany, although they were at the same time making mention of what was happening to Catholic Poles in Poland when Germany was rolling through there. And so um, it's, not, it, it's not that Catholics weren't secretly helping Jews in many circumstances, they were. Um, so it's not the run-of-the-mill Catholic who, who kind of gets labeled with this, but it's the people who were in control. And again, it's the idea of consolidating power. As they lose power, they're trying to grip onto it and keep begin the papacy of John the 23rd, um, which is ironic because John the 23rd was, there was another pope who was called John the 23rd, but that was during the three pope era where one of them was clearly not the pope and the Catholic Church hasn't ever really figured out which one was the actual pope and it certainly wasn't John the 23rd. So it's, it's weird for him to say, well, I'll just call myself John the 23rd. He should have just skipped the whole John thing. Um, but nevertheless, he's 77 when he becomes pope. Um, popes have a pretty short lifespan. So any, anytime you, you know, you've seen those before and after pictures of people who become president, right? So before they, they look like young and trim and they look like, by the end, they look like they just got done running a marathon and they're just over with life. And um, the same, same way for popes. Popes just have a, a hard life. They, they do a lot of work. They're called upon and required to do a lot of stuff. So at 77, um, you're already up against it. And so when he, he begins, uh, he gets right to work immediately, um, which is odd because the, one of the first things he does is call a council together. And many of his advisors told him that this was ridiculous, you don't have to do this, because again, papal infallibility was there. You don't need to have a council. You don't, if you want to push something through, you have every right to do that on your own. Just sit on the throne and issue the, the declaration. 
And uh, he said, no, uh, we need to have a council for this. So there, there was a number of things that he wanted addressed, and he wanted it to be very, very clear um, that this isn't coming from simply the authority of the church. This is coming from the church itself. Uh, that, that is not a minor thing. That's a huge step. So every, every pope up till then seems to in some way be sort of trying to consolidate their power but John the 23rd seemed very intent on not making this a one-man show. He wanted the other bishops to be involved. He called them his fellow, his fellow bishops. He didn't talk down to them. Uh, he was a very humble man uh, by all accounts. And um, he also knew that any declaration that he made would be coming strictly from Rome. And we're going to talk about this. Um, one of the things that the council made clear was basically it was a a way of sort of decentralizing the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church was very centered on Rome. And by calling this council, he, he literally decentralizes it. And one of the ways he does that is by the... the America, but uh, America and Canada... And, and almost all of the rest were from Latin America, from Africa, and from Asia. And so with that collection, what you ended up with was the church wasn't just standing for things that the West thought was important. Now you've got... Um, if you've ever talked to a Catholic about the Second Vatican Council, what was the main thing that happened in Vatican II? What's that? I can't hear. Meet on Friday? <laughs> well, okay, that, that might be what, <laughs> what most Catholics... Uh, praise God. Um, the Pope was a meat eater and he had had enough of that. That's actually the second thing that he did ex cathedra. Uh, um, no, so that wasn't the most important thing. That was something that happened. Yeah, does anybody know? What it was? Yeah, Latin is the it, it was done away with. I mean, it wasn't done away with. You can still do it in Latin, but what they they said was we need to make changes to the liturgy. And again, you've got all these people coming from Africa and from Latin, from South America and from Asia, and they were all saying we should be able to do the mass in our language. And again, you. It's a decentralization. Like, why was it done in Latin, right? Latin isn't the language of the New Testament. It's not a biblical thing. It was done in Latin because Latin was the language of Rome. Like, it was, it was very clearly to say that we are the center of everything. And so even coming and saying, hey, we need to address how the mass is done, we need to address how the liturgy is done, um, that was a big deal. So not only could they do it in the vernacular, but the church went one step further and said, when it comes to the liturgy, so long, I think the language is something like, so long as the centrality of the Roman rite, which I think means um, the rite of the Lord's Supper and, and the centrality of how Rome perceives the rite of the Supper, so long as that is still central, you can even modify the liturgy for your own cultural context. And so if you go to a church in Latin America or you go to a church in America or you go to a church in Asia, 
It's not just that the, the language is going to be different. They didn't just translate that stuff over. They are allowed to, to give some tweaks and some changes to actually the form of worship there in order for it to be more culturally sensitive. So again, you've got the church sort of lessening the reins of, of centralization and allowing parishes to make these sorts of decisions. Now, I don't know if it gets down. I don't think priests can do it. I think maybe cardinals can adjust this for the area that they are a cardinal over. But at the same time, you, you have this sort of thing being, being loosened. Um, the constitution of the church, um, they were very clear before that the church constituted the hierarchy of the church. The, the nature of the Catholic church was seen in its hierarchy. The Catholic church was defined by the pope, the cardinals, the bishops, and the priests. That was the Catholic church. The hierarchy was the Catholic church. Post-Vatican II, that isn't the constitution of the church. The church is constituted by the people of the church. So again, there's sort of a lessening of authority and a granting of status to those outside of Rome and to those outside of the hierarchy of Rome. Um, one of the other major things that come from Vatican II is um, a movement towards ecumenism. Um, basically, ecumenism is the idea that... Um, Catholics want to start to get along better with people who aren't Catholic, um, with other Christ people who call themselves Christian who aren't Catholic. And um, this can take some weird forms, but I want to read to you from the decree on ecumenism. Uh, it's called Unitatis Redeematio, and um, I'm pretty sure that it's I'm pretty sure it's either Latin or, or Italian. I don't know what it is. It's probably Latin. Um, but I'll, I'll read to you, not in the Latin, obviously. This will be the English translation. Um, and so there's, there's a wording in here that you have to ask what they mean by that in order for this to have any sort of teeth. Um, but this is a pretty major development within Catholicism, which has been antagonistic to anything that's not Catholicism. So we've, we've read from Trent before, and Trent was really like firm on, if you are a Protestant, you're out, right? And this is, this is slowing that down a little bit, which again, if you were Martin Luther, you would look at the Council of Trent, and you would look at this council and say, these two things don't fit together, okay? The Council of Trent said that we are anathema like 38,000 times, and now you guys are saying, but it's probably okay, right? And, and I think Luther would say, these things don't match. But for us, because it's fine that they don't match, because we know that men are fallible, uh, this is a, it's, it's a good movement. So here's what part of it says. For men who believe in Christ and have been truly baptized, I don't know what that means, um, are in communion with the Catholic Church, even though this communion is imperfect, the differences that exist in varying degrees between them and the Catholic Church, whether in doctrine and sometimes in discipline, or concerning the structure of the Church, do indeed create many obstacles, sometimes serious ones, to full ecclesiastical communion. The ecumenical movement is striving to overcome these obstacles. But even in spite of them, it remains true that all who have been justified by faith in baptism are members of Christ's body and have a right to be called Christian, and so are correctly accepted as brothers, by the children of the Catholic Church. Now, there's a lot of language in there about baptism that you've got to kind of scratch your head and be like, okay, so how are you defining baptism? There's our baptism, okay? Um, they're, they're clearly not thinking that you have to be baptized into the Catholic Church because 
that would defeat the whole purpose of the thing. Maybe that is what they mean. Maybe it's just people who have been baptized in. But you can read that as saying, like, if Christian baptism is being done, then, then it should be all right, okay? They go on to say, moreover, some and even very many of the significant elements and endowments which, which together go to build up and give life to the church itself can exist outside the visible, visible boundaries of the Catholic Church, the written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, and visible elements too. All of these, which come from Christ and lead back to Christ, belong by right to the one church of Christ. And so, that's, that's a very, I hadn't even noticed that before, that's a very strange way of putting it. So, they're talking about these elements that are, exist for the church of God that are given to them by the Spirit, and clearly talking about people outside of the Catholic Church. You'll notice that they say it comes from Christ, it goes back to Christ, and belong by right to the one church of Christ. Now, they think that they're the one church, but they're applying these very things to people outside of the church, which again, if you press them, it seems like what they're saying is the one church is not just isolated to the Catholic Church, which is again, a huge, huge movement for them. The brethren divided from us also use many liturgical actions of the Christian religion. These most certainly can truly engender a life of grace in ways that vary according to the condition of each church or community. These liturgical actions must be regarded as capable of giving access to the community of salvation. Like, that's a really big deal. Um, and again, I think that Catholics can come back and say, well, we're going we're gonna to define this pretty narrowly, but the fact that this kind of language could come out of a council at all is, is really kind of important. No. No, I wasn't going to, but go ahead. If, Right. It was mainly Lutherans and Catholics coming together, but there were some, some others, yeah. Keeper of the faith. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I can't, I, I would... Yeah. So solo fide as a as a as a doctrinal position for Protestants is still under a curse from the right. church post-Vatican. Right. But even in even in that, it, like I, there, the Catholic Church can't doesn't do a good enough job defining these things to make it like ironclad, right? So the way that they're defining sola fide is the way that I think a lot of us would define people who stand up and say that they are Christians without actually living out the Christian life. And we would say that they're anathema as well. We would look at the, the fruit of their labors and say, well, you know, you're, you're sinning, you're not repenting, you don't seem to be, be actively involved. Like, the way that they define, they, they go to the entrent, they go to like the worst examples of what sola fide would possibly mean and, and anathematize that. But your point stands. Like, I'm not saying that this is, the floodgates have opened and we're now like, Peace and righteousness, kiss, or something like that. Right. Right. Try, trying to work through. Mm -hmm. 
and said, we're done. Yeah. So it, I think that you're right in saying that it wasn't everything that we could have wanted. And certainly it's not, again, it's not the floodgates opening in completeness. Um, but there is a significant movement and at least some form or fashion towards understanding the restrictiveness that Catholics had towards anyone else outside of the Catholic Church has been loosened in some part, right? So agree that they would, they would look at this and say, yeah, sola fide is out, um, but is, that, is the way that they're defining sola fide and, and even the way that they talk here is that compatible to the way we use sola fide and what we're trying to say? And I, I think that it's not, but, but I, I, all my point is to say, like, even for the Catholic Church, and, and you can tell that it was a big deal because the, the conservative reaction against this was strong. They, they, they were like, it, they were like this, is, this is unpalatable in every single way. Right? So this was not just the Pope doing this as cathedra. This is the official document of the Catholic Church. This is what Catholics are to believe. And Catholics are upset about this because they see it as a, as a throwing away of all of the, I'm not going to use a word that Catholics would like here, well, maybe they would, all the fighting and all the striving that Catholics have done throughout the ages to make sure that they maintain their doctrinal purity um, against the Reformation, they, they viewed this as throwing it away. So, at the very least, it is a clear movement away from that sort of strict Catholicism that says everyone else is going to hell unless you're in the Catholic Church. <clears throat> now, that's not obviously enough, and we'll come back to that here in a second, um, but nevertheless, it, it was significant. Um, this council also wanted to do something, um, especially the, the bishops from non-Western countries wanted to re-emphasize in these documents the centrality of Christ. And so they were very firm that they wanted to do this. Um, eventually, the council does something like that, although um, by this time, um, John the 23rd had died and Paul the 6th had taken over, who was a staunch conservative, and they wanted to affirm the centrality of Christ and for the third time today, what did the Pope sneak in there just for good measure? So in a document about the centrality of Christ, something about Mary. So while in the document that talks about the centrality of Christ, the Pope, sneaked, the Pope unilaterally said, we're going to include this, that Mary is the mother of the church. Which you're like, okay, whatever, dude. Like, I, I know why you did that, but, you know, you just can't let Jesus... He's not like this, like, weary teenager who needs his mom to do his laundry for him, right? He can, he can stand on his own. Um, what happens after that? Um, the very beloved Pope John, the Paul, Pope John Paul II takes over the papacy. He's got to deal with a number of issues, um, including uh, the sexual abuse scandal, which starts, um, which, again, you see some of these vestiges from the old Catholic Church not going away. Um, the Catholic Church, obviously, uh, circles the wagons in a lot of that. Um, they're trying to protect people who are in power. When, when priests are known to be guilty, instead of removing them from the priesthood, they simply move them to a new parish, right? So this is kind of continuously going on, so they're still circling the wagons. He's got to deal with that. Um, he has to deal with things like um, 
celibacy and priests, women priests, and, and he, he, he handles all this. And for the most part, I think um, he's very beloved by Catholics. In 2005, after he dies, um, Cardinal Ratzinger is made uh, Pope. He is Benedict Sixteenth. Um, after he I don't know, abdicates, I don't know what you call that when Pope steps down, but he just kind of was like, peace out, I'm done. I'm not dead, but I'm not doing this anymore. Um, by the way, if you, if you get a chance to read something about Ratzinger, it's really good. I've got this little book about Ratzinger about the creation. This is excellent. Like, not all of it. Some of it's trash. But, but when, you get, when you get to the back here about sin and salvation, and he talks about, like, um, the response of the New Testament to sin and salvation, he's got this beautiful section about Christ in here. It's really, really wonderful. I don't have time to read it today because um, we've got other things to do. But, um, so, uh, and then we get Francis, who, who couldn't be more different from Ratzinger. So Ratzinger was actually, uh, before he became Pope, he was the head of basically making sure it was the Spanish Inquisition, but kind, basically, is what he was. He was doctrinal purity was, was his thing. And um, he, he was uh, standing against liberation theology. He was standing against a lot of these things that, that a lot of people, and especially in the Southern Hemisphere, have caught on to. Um, he was open in a number of ways to things that we wouldn't think he was. So while he was saying priests need to be celibate, I don't know what actually happened to this, but um, he was at least open to considering taking on an Anglican priest who converted to Catholicism and wanted to be a priest. He considered taking him on as a priest, even though he was married. And he wasn't going to make him leave his wife. Um, I don't know if that went through, uh, because it seems like if you really wanted to be a priest and be married, you'd just be Anglican for a little bit and then convert back over. Um, at least my devious mind would work that way. But nevertheless, uh, my devious mind would just be like, I should just be a Baptist. Um, and then I can be married and not worry about it. So a couple of things to, to talk about as we finish up. Um, in all of this, we should... Um, Understand that as Protestants and Catholics, we have a good deal of differences and a good deal of similarities, and we shouldn't maximize the differences or maximize the similarities in order to make the, the division larger than it is or in order to kind of paper over very clear differences that we have. Um, we, we just we can't stand by the Catholic Church and say, this is a good institution to be a part of right? Uh, we have to say it's, it's dangerous. If you really, truly do trust in Jesus Christ, um, you should pull yourself out of that church and find a good, solid church. Um, but at the same time, um, they're not Muslim, right? They're not like an apostate church in, in the fullest sense of the word. So this is one of the ways I think we can continue to pray for them. Um, pray that this, what, what happened in Vatican II continues um, pray that the centrality of Christ, even though it was downplayed at the end, is still being maintained. Um, when you talk to Catholics and they talk about salvation, they will, they will say the same sort of things that we say in, in kind of a broad patchwork of things. That salvation is only by Christ, that it is only by the work of Christ and the merits of Christ that you go to heaven, all that stuff. This is what I would liken it to, though. Um, Adam was basically driving the Titanic when it hit that iceberg, okay? And all of humanity is going down, and we are now floating in the North Atlantic, and, and the Titanic just went straight down 
There, there's nothing to hang on to. You're going to tread water, okay? Um, Jesus has come along, and he is, and I know the analogy doesn't work. Jesus is the boat, but he's giving you a boat, right? And he's going to save you. He's not going to give you driftwood. He's giving you a boat that's going to get you back to shore. In Protestant theology, he just gives you a fully formed boat that is pretty spectacular. It comes with all the graces, all the blessings, all the bells, all the whistles to get you back to the shore of your salvation, okay? In Catholic theology, to me, it sounds like Christ gave them a boat, but it was like an Ikea boat, okay? So he, he gives them this big cardboard box, and it's got 85 million pieces, and while they're floating around, they've got to assemble the thing and get it together, and, and then they can get back to shore if they work really hard at it. And they can say, how did you get back to shore? Well, Jesus came and saw me, okay, and, and Jesus gave me a boat, and, and he helped me. He read the instructions to me, and, and he gave me food every once in a while, and eventually I got back to shore. So there's a way in which they can say, hey, this is all of Christ, but they are clearly active in working out and, and making themselves ready for that. And we, we're like, no, he makes us ready for it by being gracious to us on the boat, but he pulls us all the way up. So there are clear differences. So they can, they can use this sort of, yes, it's all of Christ, it's all of Jesus, but you need to understand what they're saying when they say stuff like that. It's not all bad, but there's a significant difference with us. And so pray that they hold on to the centrality of Christ. They see truly the fullness of the gift that Christ has given because they, they minimize, in some sense, I think that the real problem is that they're minimizing the greatness of Christ. They don't know how great Jesus Christ truly is and how great his salvation truly is. Um, even as they talk about it, they speak well of it, they don't speak well enough of it. Um, pray, them to, pray for them to continue to see Scripture as central. Um, all the weird Mary stuff comes from this, that Scripture isn't central to them, that Scripture stands alongside their quite quirky church traditions. And, and we, can, we can say that, like, some of this stuff is just, is just stuff that happened, guys. Like, People do weird stuff in history. You don't have to say to them, we need to hang on to all of it. Like, like Scripture is what they need to hang on to. And, and much of the, the nonsense would go. Like, the, the stuff that Protestants find most distasteful are the weird things that come up simply because Catholics hold to their own authority on top of biblical authority. If, if we just had biblical authority, it would go a long way to being able to patch up what's going on. So pray for that. That's not there yet. That's why we, we need to pray for it. And lastly, one of the things we want to do is continue that, um, continue to pray for humility at the top. I, I think that so long as papal authority is being held on to and maintained, um, it's going to be very, very hard for the Protestant church to have a connection with the Catholic church of any real meaningful way. Um, in the same way in which you know, a lot of Protestant churches are divided, but they can, they can understand themselves as Christians um, and see them working for the good of Christ in the world. It's going to be very hard for us to see eye to eye with Catholics on that so long as the Pope is claiming the authority that he actually has historically claimed. And they, they have not backed down on that, right? Um, just, they just haven't done that. And until they get somebody who is humble enough, which is frankly, almost unthinkable, right? It's almost unthinkable that someone could rise up through the ranks of the Catholic Church and be humble enough to do the one thing that would dissolve the Catholic Church. 
So that would be a work of God. We should pray for that and ask for his blessings on that. So pray for your Catholic neighbors. Um, they, are not, they are not one with us, um, but we pray that that might one day be true. Um, pray that um, by, their own, by their own confessions, that they can be clear about the gospel, um, even though that is, that is quite a prayer. Um, pray that they might be like a number of people in the New Testament who speak better than they know, right? So there's a number of times where we have Gamaliel saying like, hey, you know, if this is from men, it'll peter out. But if it's from God, it's going to stay, stay and, and kind of grow. And then that happens. Just pray that these priests who are over the people speak so well of Christ that they're speaking better of the gospel than they truly know and, uh, and pray for their souls. So um, we now have rabid-looking young people. So I should... Um, any quick questions? They can wait. I don't believe that that's the case. So the bells have been removed from it um, because they were consecrated. Um, by profane, you, you mean, yeah. uh, let's be clear what you mean by profane. You just mean like regular everyday use, not for like, not to, not to have speakers up there issuing profanity, which would be something, something we considered at one point in time, but people shot it down. So, um, uh, I think that if we put bells, they, no, they, they, handed, they handed the whole thing over to us. We're not allowed to use those things that they have consecrated. So they took, they took all that out. But we can use, that is ours. We can use it for whatever we want to. They, they have... The, They have, they have restrictions on pro-life type issues. Um, yes, so it's for those sort of immoral uses, yes. But, I, so, but that's, not, that's not exactly what you get at. So hang on, we're, so it turned into a longer thing. You can ask me later. Let's, let's pray, and, uh, and then people don't have to look so concerned out there on the thing that I'm going to keep talking. So let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful um, for the work that we have seen amongst Catholics, but we know, Father, there's so much more to go. And um, we pray for um, them. We pray that Christ would be magnified among them, uh, that true faith would be exemplified among them. Uh, we pray for your spirit of grace and, and provision to be with them. Uh, we ask, Father, that uh, we ourselves would be um, able and willing to look at our own lives and to see where we have failed, that uh, we don't seem superior to them, to know that we are indeed saved by grace and by the work of the Spirit upon us, um, that we might remain humble as well. Um, but we pray for your blessings to be upon them, that they might um, see something of their error and repent of it and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ fully in all things. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.